In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. Amen. Let all our actions, Lord, we pray, be directed by your inspiration and furthered by your help, so that every prayer and work of ours may begin from you, and through you be brought to completion. Amen. What a wonderful, cool day the Lord has given us for harvest. And he ensured the rains, and hopefully a good night's sleep, and everybody's feeling refreshed. I'll try and speak a little louder. I believe some people struggled to hear me last night. Now, we've made our remote preparation for the retreat last night. We've intellectually familiarized ourselves with the sacred texts. And then, earlier this morning, I hope... We've all made our proximate preparation, gathering from the text into the baskets of our memory all the fruits that we're going to press today. And so I propose in this um, more brief conference this morning to provide some discursive information for your imaginative mind work or meditation, which we'll do right after this talk. And the idea is that you will then subject to the press of your imaginations what, what we talk about this morning. Firstly, uh, a few facts or informations about Bethany as a place. Bethany is a very small hamlet. It's less than two miles from the city gates of Jerusalem, which is the big city. And Bethany is almost ridiculously small in comparison. And in a sense, um, we can consider this retreat where we've come today to be our Bethany. It also lies not many miles to the east of the city where we do our work and our ministry. It's close enough to the reality of our work but it's also a necessary step aside because it's just a little beyond its reach, beyond the reach of its claims. So it's a place of retreat and refreshment. Now, Bethany was interestingly, it is interestingly located at the top of the steep hill road which climbs up to Jerusalem from the city of Jericho, which is down in the valley of the Jordan River. And Jericho lies at 850 feet below sea level. It is the lowest situated city on planet Earth. On the contrary, Jerusalem for the Jews, the holy Mount Zion, is considered to be the apex, the highest, the top of the world. And at Bethany we lie just at the cusp of reaching the summit of the pilgrim route from Jericho to Jerusalem. And the summit, of course, uh, spiritually considered, is a place of consolation. We come to the, the hilltop to get a sense of spiritual perspective. From the hill, uh, like at the Mount of the Transfiguration, we're able to see further, even perhaps into the future. Last night, uh, Brian asked us, what the future holds. And here at the summit, uh, here at Mount Olivet, at Bethany, 
we're able to look with the Lord a little bit into the future, and that will be more the work of this afternoon, making resolutions about ourselves and about our ministry. Before we descend once more from the heights of consolation into the valley of our work and travail. Many of you, I'm sure, know that the word Bethlehem means house of bread, which is very interesting for us as Catholics who have a Eucharistic Lord, that our Lord should come into this world in a place called house of bread. Also, I suppose that he made his first appearance in something called a manger, which is the French word that means eat. And, of course, it was a feeding trough for the beasts. Now, Bethlehem means house. Uh, Beth is house. And so Bethany is also a house of sorts, isn't it? According to our church father, St. Jerome, who translated the scriptures into the language of the church, Bethany means house of misery or house of affliction. And in modern language, we would call Bethany the poor house. Bethany was the location of an alms house in antiquity, a place for the care of the poor, of the inconvenient. And this might explain also why it was located a little bit, dist- a little bit of a distance from the respectable folk. And this is a fact about Bethany that should be of great interest to us as Vincentians. Because it was at Bethany that Jesus pronounced the saying, The poor you have always with you. And it's a saying that makes perfect sense in a house of mercy, in an almshouse like Bethany. Whereas perhaps many of you have thought, considering it in another setting, that it seems callous. It also might explain why the objections to the use of costly ointment, the spikenard, with which Christ was anointed, that objections were made on account of the fact that it could have been sold and its proceeds used and distributed among the poor. There is some suggestion that this poor house, this arms house, function of Bethany, was the initiative of a group called the Essenes. Now, the Essenes are very interesting to us as Catholics because they are a pre-Christian monastic movement. And they were not only for men, or alternatively for women, but men and women together lived a common life which also should be of interest to us as Vincentians, that Bethany was a place of a proto-monastic community, a community that prayed and lived together, worked together. Um, Probably the most prominent member of the Essene community is considered to be St. John the Baptist, a very monastic figure, even in his dress, even in his diet, and certainly in his prophetic calling. And some have even suggested, given the close family relation to the Holy Family, that the Holy Family themselves participated in this renewal movement of Judaism called the Essenes.
they sought to take themselves away from the rather incestuous theological debates that took place all the time between the Sadducees, who were the ruling class, and the, and the Pharisees, who were the theological class. In any event, I think it will be obvious to you that Bethany is a very emblematic place for Vincentians, both from the point of view of forming a community and, and, and getting away from perhaps debates and rolling up your sleeves and rather getting to the work of the gospel, and secondly, because it was a house of mercy. Right alongside Bethany, almost in ridiculous juxtaposition, stands the, the, the town of Bethpage. Bethpage was a very opulent, successful community located very prominently on the upper slopes of Mount Olivet with splendid views and easily seen from the Temple of Jerusalem and from the city walls. And poor little Bethany, very close by, Bethpage, is located further down the slope and around the corner, seemingly intentionally hidden away from the view of the city walls and certainly of the temple. Even today, Bethany is considered a kind of a ruinous village with less than 20 families populating it. What's quite interesting in archaeology is they have discovered at Bethany a large Galilean ossuary or collection of bones, basically a cemetery of Galileans. Bethany is very far from Galilee. And this suggests that Bethany was a place where Galileans assembled. Now, what were Galileans doing assembling so close to Jerusalem? They were pilgrims coming to Jerusalem and to the temple to participate in the feasts and the temple festivals. Just as we hear our Lord and his disciples doing so many times. Now, you can draw a straight line from Galilee to Jerusalem and it certainly does not go through Bethany. It goes through Samaria. But perhaps to avoid the conflicts that were taking place between the Jews and the Samaritans, the Galileans, when they went to Jerusalem, invariably went around Samaria, following the valley of the River Jordan until they reached that lowest point at Jericho. And then they ascended, like good pilgrims, on a steep upward trajectory, towards Jerusalem. And their last stop or station before entering the city of Jerusalem, of course, was Bethany. Now, the Galileans might have had cause to gather not inside the city walls, but rather at a respectable distance from the city walls, because Galileans were themselves regarded by Judeans, where Jerusalem is, as being second-rate Jews, Jesus among them. And so perhaps they kept themselves somewhat apart in this way. In fact, it was from Bethany itself that our Lord begins that most important pilgrimage procession, the one that we commemorate every year on Palm Sunday, when he entered the city walls riding a donkey to, crowd, to cries of Hosanna, Hosanna in the highest. Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord, Hosanna. Hosanna. 
It suggests then that Bethany for our Lord was not only a place of retreat in itself, but as we are doing this weekend, it was a place of retreat as a springboard for future action. So he retreated to a place from which, gathering his energies, he could commence the difficult, the sacrificial work ahead. And I hope, as Vincentians, that you can see a lot of meaning in this Bethany weekend on this aspect as well. As we see in our sacred texts, Bethany was the location of a highly significant meal that Jesus shared. It's reported in all the Gospels. Jesus shared this meal, according to the Synoptic Gospels, with Simon the leper, who's also known in Scripture as Simon the Pharisee. Now, this suggests that this Simon lived apart from the rest of the Pharisees at Bethany, not in Jerusalem, on account of an affliction that he bore, the disease of leprosy. Now, those afflicted by earthly suffering were regarded in the Old Testament incorrectly as being cursed by God and not worthy of dwelling in the community of the elect, but in fact as being dangerous to the community as a whole. So they were exiled or ostracized and allowed to die. In a moment, um, I'm going to read you a parable in which we will hear how Jesus definitively refutes the notion that prosperity on earth is a blessing and that affliction on earth is a curse. In fact, he suggests the opposite. And it's very important in our day and age in which the gospel is being usurped by many sects as a kind of a prosperity gospel to refute this notion. And I think that Vincentians lie at the forefront of the battle of keeping this message clear at the heart of the gospel that affliction is not a curse. Blessed are you. Well, Bethany lies just beyond the radius of what the law prescribed of the distance that lepers had to be isolated from the rest of the community. So Bethany might originally have been founded as a leper colony, and then later it became a place where other social outcasts would find a loving home, be they poor or afflicted or um, marginalized like the Galileans. So it is the Synoptic Gospels who make the location of the meal that Jesus has the home of Simon the leper, or Simon the Pharisee. But St. John's Gospel clearly says that this meal took place at the house of Lazarus. And this suggests, which the fathers of the church have agreed with, that Lazarus and Simon the leper were one and the same person. Lazarus's membership of the body of the Pharisees might explain why Caiaphas and Annas were so quick to have 
to resolve to have Lazarus put to death after he is raised from the death by Jesus because he was a significant exile, someone prominent who had fallen from graces. The church fathers didn't hesitate to identify this Simon with Lazarus, but they went further too, and they identified this Lazarus, Christ's friend at Bethany, with the Lazarus of Christ's parable, which makes Lazarus the poor man who begs at the gates of the wealthy Pharisee's mansion. Metaphorically speaking, this is what Bethany is to Jerusalem, the big house. At the gates of Jerusalem lies the poor beggar of Bethany. And here is the parable of Lazarus and Dives. It's found in the 16th chapter of the Gospel of St. Luke, between verses 19 and 31. Luke 16, 19 to 31. There was a rich man once that was clothed in purple and who feasted sumptuously every day. And there was a beggar called Lazarus who lay at his gate, covered with sores, wishing that he could be fed with even the crumbs which fell from the rich man's table. But none was ready to give them to him. The very dogs came and licked his sores. Time went on. The beggar died and was carried by the angels to Abraham's bosom. The rich man died too and found his grave in hell. And there, in his suffering, he lifted up his eyes and saw Abraham afar off and Lazarus in his bosom. And he said with a loud cry, Father Abraham, take pity on me. Send Lazarus to dip the tip of his finger in water and come, cool my tongue, for I am tormented in these flames. But Abraham said, My son, remember that thou didst receive thy good fortune in thy lifetime, and Lazarus, no less, his ill fortune. Now he is in comfort, and thou in torment. And besides all this, there is a great gulf fixed between us, so that there is no passing from our side of it to yours, no crossing over to us from yours. Whereupon he said, Then, Father, I pray thee, send him to my own father's house, for I have five brethren. Let him give these a warning 
so that they might not come in their turn to this place of suffering. Abraham said to him, They have Moses and the prophets. Let them listen to these. They will not do that. Dear Father Abraham, said he, but if a messenger should come to them from the dead, they will repent. But he answered, My son, if they do not listen to Moses and to the prophets, they will remain unbelieving, even though one should rise from the dead. So if forlorn Bethany is the beggar lying at the gates of wealthy Jerusalem, where the sumptuously attired Sanhedrin answer to Jesus when he brings his message of salvation, we have Abraham for our father. Then Simon, or Lazarus, one of their number, a Pharisee, is the one who has been relegated beyond the gates, out of sight, to sit with his wounds. And then the meaning of this parable is so replete with meaning. Even when we consider that our Lord pronounces here on those great disputes between the Pharisees and the Sadducees concerning the resurrection of the dead, and his mention of Lazarus being carried by an angel answers their great dispute also about the existence of spiritual beings, angels. Although Jesus, in fact, brings this Lazarus back from the dead as a messenger of truth to them, what is their response? To decree to kill him. This is the very messenger sent to warn the brothers of Dives. But ultimately, of course, the witness who comes back from the dead, whom they will not believe, is the risen Christ himself. The fulfillment of the law and the prophets. He is the fulfillment of Moses and the prophets, but they will not listen to him. And in our next conference, we will look at the striking identification between Jesus the risen one, and Lazarus, the risen one. Jesus, the poor man, the man who made himself poor, and the poor Lazarus. But in any event, the figure of Lazarus emerges with ever deeper meaning for us. And it also explains, in a sense, the vocation of his sisters, Martha and Mary, who are there to tend to him in his affliction, though in very different ways. This is the man the gospel considers one of Jesus' closest friends. His particular love and friendship of Lazarus and his two sisters is very heavily emphasized by the scriptures. His greatest miracle, the raising of Lazarus, is also accompanied by the starkest expression of his emotional feeling in the shortest verse in scripture, and Jesus wept. So in the final analysis, dear friends, 
Bethany was considered by Jesus a safe haven. And this is precisely the meaning of the Greek word parish, where each of us exercises his or her ministry. When the Roman Empire converted to Christianity, the church simply adopted all the jurisdictional terms that the Romans used, diocese, archdiocese, exarchy, deanery, except for one. The church insisted on keeping one of the old Greek measurements, and the word was parish. And the Greek word parish means safe haven. It means harbor. It means refuge. It means safe house. And it was of such meaning to the Christians who had spent centuries in persecution that they would have a Bethany, that they would have a place where they could come to be themselves among one another, out of sight, perhaps, from the world and its authorities, but where they could refresh themselves and one another in each other's friendship and company. And this makes of our weekly St. Vincent de Paul meetings in our parishes something special. What we are doing now for the year, our annual retreat, should be duplicated also in our parish meetings, our weekly retreat. If you could think of your meetings as a weekly retreat. The church does this. Long before we had an annual Easter, long before Easter was on the liturgical calendar, we had the weekly Easter. The day of the Lord, Sunday, was regarded as Easter. That's why even today, Sunday is the highest solemnity we have in the church. As we have a weekly Easter and an annual Easter, let us have an annual Bethany this weekend, but also a weekly Bethany in our parish meetings. Unfortunately, the consumer culture in which we live has polluted very much the way that we think of our parishes, as well as other church institutions, including St. Vincent de Paul. <coughs> when we hear the way some people speak, if you're a priest, especially when they are talking about their wedding or a funeral. But in St. Vincent de Paul, I'm sure you hear it all too often. We cannot doubt anymore that many people simply think of the parish or the church institutions as one of all the many service providers available in the world. And of course, the customer is always right. Perhaps you have felt treated this way in your work as Vincentians. Be careful that you keep it clear in your own mind, because that will help you communicate this to others, that we cannot subscribe to the consumerization of Christ's church. Yes, we call the recipients of our work clients, but that is to emphasize the fact that we are in their service. Let us not use the word clients in the consumerist idea of the word. Let us not communicate to them the idea that we are simply a social service provider. We are the church. So, in summary, I would say that 
We should focus now on the three principal characters of the drama of Bethany. These three offer themselves up for our contemplation this morning, since we take Bethany as our model for retreat. Namely, Martha, her sister Mary, and their brother Lazarus. Now, for your imaginative meditation this morning, I'd like us to take each of these characters as exemplary for how the gospel is calling us to live our vocations more fully as Vincentians. And so the primary exercise of this first spiritual exercise is an analytical approach. We are taking Bethany apart into its different component parts, and we're analyzing them with our imagination. <clears throat> Later this morning, at, uh, well, in about an hour's time, at 10.15, <clears throat> let's make it 10.20, we'll be putting Bethany back together, and we'll have a synthetic meditation on putting the component parts of our vocation together, but in the proper order. By now, you've had your remote preparation last night and your proximate preparation this morning with the sacred word of God. And you have this morning in your morning prayer applied the secateurs of your intellect to gather certain bunches, certain fruits that you wish to extract, and you've been carrying them until now in the basket of your memory. Now it is time, after this, to subject them to the press of your imagination. And so in the course of the next hour, I'd like us to enter into what's called meditation, which is a discursive exercise. It thinks. It asks questions. It uses words. It uses symbols. It uses images. But all of this is done interiorly in our spirit. So I suggest to take, perhaps, if you want to do it this way, feel free, to take the first 20 minutes to enter imaginatively into the vocation of Martha, which is the vocation, the part of the vocation that probably comes easiest to most Vincentians. You are the one who goes out. You are the one who meets the caller. You are one who makes the appeal for help. You are the one who keeps house, tends the sick brother. You are the one who cooks, who cleans, who does many things. But you are also the one who can grumble a little to the Lord about your share of the work and the seeming ingratitude involved. You are the one, perhaps, who looks critically at those who are not pulling the same weight, in your opinion. And you are the one anxious for many things. Offer all of this to the Lord to be redeemed. We need to be redeemed, even in our thoughts, in our opinions, in our instincts. And then listen for the voice of the Lord as he calls your name, Martha. Not once, but twice. Martha, you are anxious about many things. One sole thing is necessary. Mary has chosen the better part, and it will not be taken from her. And so then perhaps move for the next 20 minutes to imaginatively experience the vocation of Mary, Martha's more contemplative sister. What has brought her to this point in her life? Why does she keep her station at the Lord's feet, washing them with her tears, 
drying them with her hair, anointing him for burial. Remember the feet are the least dignified part of the human body. Vincentian could also identify with going out to the least dignified. Might it be in Mary that she has assumed in her vocation as a Vincentian a penitential approach? Is part of her service a penance, considering that she was forgiven many sins? The Gospel says from her the Lord drove seven demons. The church fathers saw in this Mary the woman who had been caught in adultery and had been thrown away and condemned to death. Jesus looked at her. Jesus saw her. And this look saved her. Jesus saved her. He saw the good in her. He loved her, and that love made her lovable. When everybody else only saw a throwaway, a sinner, he forgave her her sins. Neither do I condemn you. Why does Mary invest such a fortune in a seemingly purely liturgical gesture? To anoint the Lord when all around her are leprous, starving, dying bodies. Maybe in your, in your vocation as Vincentians you struggle with disproportionate disbursements. Has she discerned that Christ came to die among us and that his sacrifice is imminent? Does she realize the extent to which God has identified with his people in an immense divine solidarity with the poor, the suffering, becoming not just one of us, but the least among us, the one afflicted for the sins of the world? Do you share with Mary the sting of her sister's critique about the way that she lives her faith? Do you feel the harsh judgment and the cynical hypocrisy of the Judases in your life who consider all of this a vast waste of time and money? And then for the next 20 minutes, try to enter into the experience of Lazarus, a man of social standing who has been afflicted and ostracized and exiled by his peers. He lives apart. Experience that rush of affirmation, of vindication, when the Messiah makes yours his home. He makes it his own. He dines with you. He reclines with you at table. He takes you into profound friendship with him. Consider how humbling it is that this privilege and this honor should have befallen you. To what do I, uh, do, what do I owe the Lord's affections and his attentions? And consider also the fears that befall a man who is deathly ill, especially when it seems his death is here and the one 
the only one who can save him, seems to be afar off and will not come, delays his coming. Experience the sort of trust such a friend grounds in his heart when he is prepared even to walk through the gates of death trusting in a friendship with Christ who seems afar off. And imagine the sensation of coming forth from your stinking tomb, the life surging once more through your cold, stiff members. Come forth from your tombs at the voice of the Lord who calls you to his side. He calls you by your name. Throw yourself unbound into his embrace and know him as your life and as your resurrection, the source and the summit, the destination and the journey of your life and your vocation as Vincentians. I wanted to also make a brief word about prayer. When, when I was catechized by the sisters, they asked us to remember a little, um, ac- uh, what do you call it when you put letters together, an acronym, yeah, to help you to remember how to pray to have all the elements of your prayer in the correct. And the way that they taught us was the word wrapped, R-A-P-T, because this is what it means to pray, to be wrapped in attention. Each letter stands for a different stage of our prayer. R stands for repentance. Have you noticed we begin all our prayers with sorrow for our failures and our shortcomings, like the penitential rite during the Mass? Our first instinct when we come into the presence of God in all his perfections should certainly be to feel our own imperfections, our inadequacies, our littleness, our unworthiness. Wrapped. R stands for repentance. A stands for adoration. Because our next instinct is to adore those perfections of God, to rejoice in his beauty, in his goodness, and in his truth. Almighty God, in all his magnificence and splendor, adore the Lord, wrapped, R-A. P stands for petition. This is the prayer of the heart, which comes probably most easily to us in prayer, since we realize our need for God when we elaborate our needs to him and the needs of the whole world. Remember on this retreat to pray not only for yourself and for your fellow Vincentians, but to pray for all your clients and all the situations that the Lord has put on your path. Wrapped. R-A-P. And the last letter is T, which stands for thanksgiving. Because no one can pray. No one can pray without the power of God's Holy Spirit making that communication possible in the first place. And for this, we need to express our gratitude and our appreciation so that we don't take such a great thing as communicating with God for granted. Now, I propose um, for about the next hour that you can, I'm going to expose the Blessed Sacrament now. You may remain here with the Lord, or if you prefer to walk or to sit in your room, and to uh, go and be first Martha, and then Mary, and then Lazarus in the press of your imaginations for the next hour. And... Um, So let's reconvene here, I think, at 10.20. And uh, after I've exposed the Blessed Sacrament, I will be available in the confession, uh, confessional for confessions or for consultations.
May joy and peace, amendment of life, room for true penitence, the grace and comfort of the Holy Spirit, and steadfastness in good works be granted us by the Almighty and merciful Lord. Amen.